The following lecture by Dr. Francis A. Schaefer was given as the commencement address at Gordon College on June 12, 1971. Gordon College's president, Dr. Ockengay, introduces Dr. Schaefer. Periodically, God touches a man for a particular and peculiar work. We can be happy that in our generation we've seen several such things happen. We've certainly seen it happen in connection with Billy Graham and with evangelism, and we've seen it happen in other areas, but now we've seen it happen also in reference to the defense of the faith. We call this, of course, apologetics or evidences. And in a very real sense, God has raised up a man to bridge the generation gap and to be able to present the modern apologetic for the Christian faith. I speak, of course, of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. I've known Dr. Schaeffer for some three decades. Now, don't think that uh, he's as old as I am because of that, but uh, we did know each other in the days of the great controversies that broke out in the Presbyterian Church, and he's been connected with a few of those, and sometimes these controversies baptize an individual with fire, but also give him a note of authority which he couldn't get in any other way, because he takes a stand for the truth and pays a great price for that truth. So he was identified with Westminster Theological Seminary after his college degree, took his uh, Bachelor of Theology there, then he went as a missionary to the field and served under the uh, Bible Pres Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Bible Presbyterian Church for a while, and then God led him to an independent work, a work which he founded in Switzerland, first with just a few students, and then it began to grow and spread and multiply, until today they have their centers called Labri in four different nations. And as God provides the staff, they could have had these centers in other nations and probably will have them in other nations. Now, Labri is a very unique place. It's on the side of a mountain. It's composed of chalets and a church which is built in the appropriate fashion and, and architectural form for Switzerland. It looks out on the snow-capped mountains, and to that area students from all over the world come in order that they might be able to bring their unbelief, their questions, their hostilities, and that they might have them resolved, if possible, before giving up Christianity altogether. They come on drugs, and they come under other influences. They come as often resembling hippies, and sometimes hippies. They come barefoot, and they come carrying their possessions on their backs, having left home, and so on. And they're welcomed there, and they're kept free for a season, and many of them go forth transformed. Now, lately, God has touched Dr. Schaefer's pen, and he's written four or five books, The God Who Is There, The Escape From Reason, the Death of the City, the Church at the End of the Century, these various books, and it'll pay you to read them, I assure you, 
And through them, he is now beginning to touch a much wider audience all over the world. And he's invited to speak in many, many nations and many cities and can't accept a small portion even of those invitations. So we're delighted to have him here today, a man who's a man not only who stands for the truth but who's been baptized with love and who expresses that in his attitude toward the youth of our day and also toward any opponents against whom he's not afraid to take his position at any time in what he calls the antithesis. So we give to you our friend, Dr. Schaefer. Yes, my theme for this morning is where we are as a generation and what comes next. What often we forget is the fact that men act specifically upon the presuppositions which they have. You can tell what a man is going to do by projection almost exactly if you know the grid through which he sees the world and then his presuppositions as to his way of life and unto his view of life uh, from which he acts out from the things uh, of his own life. In order to understand where we are, in order to understand ourselves, those of you who are graduating, even though you may have come from Christian homes and been raised in a Christian college, yet nevertheless you must understand exactly what these presuppositions are and how we have come to these if you're all going to be able to really withstand the pressures of our own day, which I believe are not going to get less but are going to get very much greater. My own personal opinion is that the next 35 years will make the last 35 years into be just kindergarten things. And so we had better understand who we are as a generation and what comes next. As you know in some of my books, I believe you can trace the modern generation and the modern mentality back to several different points. The first would be that I would touch upon one that I've dealt with largely in my work, and that is the birth of modern science. As I think of the birth of modern science, I'm thinking of the time of Galileo and these other men, Copernicus back in that period. And we do not have to guess what the, what the consensus was that gave birth to modern science, nor do we have to think of it basically from a Christian viewpoint, because the non-Christian leaders themselves understand what the birth of modern science really was. A man like Oppenheimer, and perhaps specifically Alfred North Whitehead has expressed it well, when he said that modern science was born on the basis, on the presupposition of the fact that there was a reasonable God who had created the universe and therefore that the universe could be discovered somewhat by reason. A very, a very tremendous statement of the basis upon which modern science was born. In that setting, these men functioned at what would be properly called a uniformity of natural causes in an open system. They did not believe in a closed system, but an open system, or putting in the area of physics, the proper way to express it, would be the uniformity of natural causes in a limited time span, one that could be changed, one in which there was a place for God, but not only a place for God, but for a place for man, one in which it was possible for man to work upon the machine portion of the universe by true choice. And that was the birth of modern science. It's my personal conviction, if men held the present philosophic basis that most men hold today, modern science would never have been born. We could go back still further and we could think of Plato at the time of the Greeks. We have never escaped the dilemma of Plato. 
I think it was Whitehead who said that all philosophy since Plato is merely a footnote, which is a bit much, but nevertheless in the right direction. And that is simply that Plato understood that you had to have an absolute. And if you didn't have an absolute, not only could you not have real morals, but you couldn't have real knowing in the area of epistemology. In the area of epistemology, the concept of how we know and the certainty of knowing, Aristotle said, unless there's an absolute out there somewhere, unless this is true, there is no hope. Not only of not having a basis for society and a basis for morals, but no real basis for knowing as well. Sartre has updated this but said the same thing when he has said that a finite point has no meaning unless it's in reference to an infinite reference point. Or we can think of the birth of modern, this modern generation at the time of the High Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And from the time of the High Renaissance and the Enlightenment on, men had an optimistic hope that on the basis of rationalism, and we must always define rationalism, rationalism is the concept that man, though he is finite, can begin from himself and gather sufficient particulars to make universals without having any other knowledge and specifically no knowledge from God. And these men were all optimists, and they all believed that man was going to begin from himself rationalistically and be able to give an answer, a unified answer to life, and an answer in a unified field, I guess would be the best way to say it. An answer to life that would give a meaning to life that would encompass all knowledge that could be found and all of life in practice. I'm passing on quickly, of course, but then we come, if we're to understand this generation and the things that batter us from every side, whether it's the art museum or the most university classes or whether it would be the cinema or the rock music, it doesn't matter. The next thing we must understand is the shift that came in science. Moving from the basis that early science had, which led to the concept of the uniformity of natural causes in an open system, science moved to the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. And it's my personal opinion that this is the basic, basic presupposition of our own generation. And if you go to the great universities, as I do from time to time, and you discuss there, you find that many things would be allowed to be open to discussion, but one thing never is allowed, and that is to, be, to challenge the concept of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. This is just everything else is considered today to be unthinkable. Of course, once you say the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system, there is not only no place for God, but there is no place for man. Man becomes a part of the cosmic machine. The next thing to understand is the shift that came in philosophy. From that optimism of rationalism of which I spoke, after three, four great philosophers, we find the change has completely come. And that is now right on the doorstep of our own generation. These four men were Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, Hegel, and Kierkegaard. Scholars might have questions about the balance between these four men, but one thing is sure, that before this rationalism was sure that man could find a unified answer to life that would be optimistic, after these four men, it has never been held again. Jean-Jacques Rousseau launched all this with understanding the threat of the machine, the threat of the machine, not the machine that man would make primarily, but rather the machine that was viewed to be the cosmos, in which man became only a behavioral part, a determined part. Jean-Jacques Rousseau placed against that which, which though, something that cannot be held that is simultaneously with it, but he held it in desperation. And that is the concept, the concept of autonomous freedom. 
the modern hippie movement, the modern generation, springs directly in a lineal descent from Jean-Jacques Rousseau's concept of autonomous freedom. In contrast, and in fear and feeling threatened by the common concept of, a, of an all-pervasive machine that includes man as well as everything else. In this, therefore, we have come, if we're to understand our generation, to a position in which there is no longer a hope of a unified field of knowledge. Or you can say it another way, truth is no longer viewed as truth. Truth is statistics. Karl Popper has taken it to the place where he says now, there is no such thing as verification, there is only falsification, and nothing less, nothing beyond that. Truth is not viewed as truth. I am convinced that the generation gap is not a matter of drugs, it is not a matter of life form. The generation gap really and truly is that the old generation still has the memory of a time when truth is truth. The modern generation is pounding at the doors with a concept that there is no such thing as truth. This is passed from the philosophers down through the intellectuals to the professors to the artists and so on, onto the students, swept around the middle class, and greatly influenced as well the great mass of people in our day. We are left then in a situation in which there is a dichotomy, in which in the sense of reason, in what I call the lower story, you only have mathematical formula. All is a machine. You are left with only determinism. You are left with only behaviorism. You are left only with a reductionism in which man is to be understood only to be reduced to the energy particle. And we must understand that in this day in which we live in the area of linguistics as well, this is all that can be put into propositional terms in the mind of modern man. Anything that has to do with an optimistic answer of life is now separated from reason into the area of non-reason, the existential cry of Sartre, we live in an absurd world, but we try to authenticate ourselves by an act of the will, perhaps more expressly Carl Jaspers, who comes and he says, everything bases upon the final experience, but then lo and behold, how do you have the final experience upon call? And Aldous Huxley, who adds to the notes, who says we can have a final experience upon call by the beginning of taking a drug, and lo, the drug, modern drug culture is born. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of people on drugs. I have never met a really intelligent drug taker, and I'm not talking about every little teeny bopper who smokes grass, but I have never met an intelligent drug taker who did not understand that he was carrying out the philosophic concept of Aldous Huxley, that life in its reason brings, brings us to a dead end, and therefore you take, you take drugs in order to try to have an, an answer of non-reason. And there's no use talking about helping drug people unless we understand where this really comes from. After this, of course, there was the Eastern religious bit, wherein many of, many of this generation has gone into the Eastern religious field. This too is broken down largely. And what is left is the new religion. What we find is the new, reli new religious interest among youngsters. What is this? Well, some of it is real happily. Some of it is real. But most of it, I would say, is only one more trip. One more trip. It is Christ or Krishna with no way to decide between them because you're isolated entirely from reason and therefore from judgment. To make this more serious is the fact that most of the modern theologians, the progressive Roman Catholic theologians on one side, the Protestant liberal theologians on the other are in the same position, in which you can say 
that after all you can take the modern youngster's religious leap, as it were, out into space where it can be Christ or Krishna, only an experience, or you can take the modern theologian and you can liken it to two forms of trip, two forms of grass, and nothing more, nothing more. This is where we are. For three or four generations in the United States, this has now been carried out into the, by the schools and out into the media from the articles which we have uh, in our common press, out from the artists, all the way down to the common book, a comic book. For three or four generations, this has been hammered home, day after day, month after month, year after year. Man is an animal, and more recently, man is only a machine. Man is only a machine. And as this has been hammered home, hammered home for three or four generations, suddenly we have come to the generation who has been honest enough to believe it who has carried these things out from the academic world, out from the art museum, and into the street, and everybody sounds surprised. I ask you, why should anybody be surprised? Is it not folly to be surprised? Will there not be one generation that we can project and understand? We no longer think of these things merely as an academic abstraction and carry it into life, and this is our generation. One can feel the tension of this in many of our universities where the professors clap where the professors cried out in glee as the students began to carry out their teaching. And then when it came to the moment, however, when the students no longer were only against the ministration, but turned against the faculty, burned the faculty papers, then the professors cried out in anguish. But don't you understand the professors have left themselves no room for say, what you did here was right, what you do here now is you burn my papers, this is wrong. The modern man is a man without category, without the possibility of saying this is right, that is wrong, this is true, that is false. As I've said downstairs, man is a machine. What is he? A little computer being dominated by society or by his university, university as the big computer. That's all. When these young people scream out and we are caught, we're caught. Weak for them, because on the basis of what they're being taught across our whole culture, they are not wrong, they are right. When they cry out, this is a hell, this is awful, they are not wrong, they're right on the basis of what they're being taught. Have compassion. We listen to this, we see them there, there, therefore, failing caught. Small computers dominated by society as a larger computer. As I say, in this realm of thinking, there is no place for categories. There is no way to say this is right, that is wrong. This is true, as against that which is false. Categories are always related to origins. This is an absolute rule in thought. Categories are always related to origins. And if we have given up the historic Christian base of a personal beginning by an infinite personal God, if we have done this, you must understand there is only one other point left, no matter how it is couched in the terms of modern science or an Eastern religion, and that is the impersonal plus time plus change. Look at the universe with its complexity, and as you look at it, you must understand, you must explain everything of the complexity only on the basis of time plus chance. Look at man and his managedness, this cry of his aspiration. You must explain him as different from the energy particle only by the addition of time plus change. If you think this is extreme, we are now being buffeted in a new way by Jacques Mano with his chance and necessity. If you want to read a good review of the book without reading the whole book, you can look at the New York Times on March 15th. Jacques Mano. Jacques Mano who says that everything is by chance, 
Therefore, we're caught totally in necessity, and there is nothing else. There is really nothing else. You must understand that what he is doing is bringing the prestige of his science to say something that has nothing to do with his science. He's using the prestige of his science to push across an idea that is not based on science, it is based, <coughs> based on his presupposition. He's related to Camus in his presupposition. Now let's move to society. If we have no absolutes, thinking of Plato's dictum, to judge society, you must understand if this is not the case, society, society is then absolute. If there is nothing whereby you might judge society, society is absolute. Try to memorize the sentence. It's worth remembering. There's not a third possibility. If there's nothing wherein you may judge society on the basis of an absolute, society itself is absolute. This is very different from the days when the little man could stand with his Bible because it was generally accepted that the Bible was something that really was more than merely a sociological average. And the little man could stand and he could say to the state or society, no matter what percentage voted in the way, you are wrong because the Bible says so. This was the basis of our republic through Samuel Rutherford, down through Locke, who secularized it, but nevertheless left the same marks upon it. Now, if we have no absolutes in society, now I'm coming to what comes next. If we have no absolutes in society, there are not many sociological possibilities. In fact, there are very, very few. If there's no absolute whereby to judge society, you may choose hedonism or hedonism, however you wish to pronounce it. This means that every man does his thing. Every man does exactly what he wants to do, and there's nothing to impose upon him. But what you must realize, this leads to absolute chaos immediately. You can have a hedonism with something without chaos as long as, long as Robinson Crusoe is alone upon his island. But bring in Friday, and hedonism will not work. It's as simple as this. But if, I, if society says, as it is saying, we do not want chaos, and we do not have an absolute, then you must realize that we're left with, again, very few possibilities. Either you're left with an absoluteness of the 51% vote, in which case, for example, Hitler would be absolutely right to do what he did to the Jews if 51% of the Germans voted for him in what he was doing, or you're left with arbitrary absolutes imposed by either one man or by an elite. In other words, an authoritative form of government. Let me say to you, for those that are graduating, to the professors, to the audience here, there are no other possibilities. Get it in our minds. If we do not have an absolute whereby to judge society, and we do not want chaos, and we do not trust the, uh, the absoluteness, the absolute absoluteness of the 51%, we will be faced with some form of authoritative government in which we will be told what the arbitrary absolutes are at that moment. Now, we have two, two such absolute things presenting itself to us as a solution in our day. The one is the Marcuse New Left, in which in the Marcuse New Left, we are told that there will be a left-wing elite which will tell society what to do. The other is a Galbraith kind of establishment elite, wherein society is a field buffeted as more and more, more people drop out from this society and it's harder and harder to carry the numbers, wherein is there is more violence, there will be a reaction to the acceptance of an establishment elite. 
The words left and right do not bear here, I would suggest. It is the new left versus the rise of the establishment elite. And this is what we're faced. If I am faced with, if I am right, the next 35 years will show the development unless we have a return to that which is the solid basis for our society. It will be faced either with a takeover with one or the other. What about the silent majority? How does this fit in? Because it is true in the United States that we can elect, the silent majority can elect yet who they wish. There's no doubt about this. But you must remember something. The silent majority are divided into two parts. The minority of the silent majority and the majority of the silent majority. And the minority of the silent majority would either be the Christian who faith bases his, what he believes upon the Bible, or it would be the man who still has a memory of values from a day that has gone by. These are the minority of the silent majority. But I say to you who are older, the young people are not completely wrong when they are skeptical <clears throat> about the majority of the silent majority. When they say that indeed for, the major for most of the majority, the silent majority, there is a very plastic situation. A situation in which there are largely only two values held by the majority of the silent majority. And that is personal peace and affluence. And on the basis of this, I think the young the silent majority, when the grind comes and they're threatened with the loss of personal peace or the loss of their affluence, that they will be, giving, be willing to give up peace after peace of their liberty in order to keep their affluence and their personal peace. I think this is where we are. The young people are not wrong at this point. They have something to be afraid of. Looking at the young people, we go back to 1964 on Berkeley's campus, where everything exploded at once, in the drug culture and in the free speech. This can continue to carry up, as it were, to a great peak at Woodstock. And up to the time of Woodstock, the young people were absolutely optimistic that they had an answer. They really had an answer in the drug culture, in their life form, that they were going to be able to revamp the world in a utopian mold. But then came Altona. Altona is the Hell's Angels, killed some of the people there as the, uh, as the Rolling Stones were playing. The Iowa White, 400,000 meeting on the early Iowa White. And it was an absolute hell when it was done. It was a chaos. It was a total chaos. Things were burned. Everything was smashed. Finally, the man who ran the thing grabbed the microphone. And the last of the Iowa White was this man screaming into the microphone swear words, blasphemies against everybody who had come. And the hope, the hope, of the young people were gone, was gone. Trace the Beatles. The Beatles through their drug period, the drug, the Beatles through their, uh, their period of the, uh, Eastern religious bit. And then you finally come when this is gone to what? The Yellow Submarine. What follows the Yellow, Yellow Submarine? You must never forget that the man Siegel who wrote the script for the movie version of Yellow Submarine is the man who wrote Love Story. This is not by chance, it is by lineal descent. What you have now is a hopelessness, a return to many of the young, young people not giving away their smoking of grass, but nevertheless not giving away their life form, but giving away their hope. So as I see it, what lies ahead, a huge mass of the young people spinning off, spinning off from their hope, still smoking the grass, still going on with their life form, but in reality being the same thing as the bourgeois 
middle class, which they have rejected before. With these people, the majority, the silent majority, hanging on to personal peace at any cost, hanging on merely to affluency at any cost, the young people not liking it, having come in a big circle, still smoking their grass, but nevertheless becoming the new bourgeois, enforcing the old bourgeois. I think this is where we are in these next years which lie ahead. In such a circumstance, I would suggest that either we must come to a sufficient base or the drift will continue. Either the beginning must be personal, namely that we begin with a personal God, and not just the word God, because the, the word God means nothing until you put con into it, content into it. The beginning by an infinite personal God who has spoken in propositions the old discussion of Scripture is not old-fashioned. It stands on the very threshold of the highest form of the intellectual discussion of our own day. Wittgenstein's great cry of silence carried down to all the world in Bergman's film silence. It's not old-fashioned. Has God, is God there? Is he a personal God? Has he spoken in propositional terms? And if he is not, the game is over. The game is over. If there is not an infinite personal God who has spoken in propositional terms, we are left with the impersonal plus time plus chance. We're left with the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. We are left with ultimate meaninglessness. We are left with an absoluteness of societies changing arbitrary absolutes. This is where we are. In conclusion, I would like to say that evangelicals in such a setting as this must not, dare not take halfway positions. If we think we can bridge the gap with the present generation by letting down the, the clear lines of the historic Christian position, we have missed the whole point. This does not bridge anything. The young people are too smart for this. They understand when, this, when it begins to be let down that all they're listening to is what they've heard before in other terms, and they walk away. You must understand that the evangelicals have their own forms of adding to the confusion. The first would be what I would call, I'd give three. The first would be what I would call a practical Kierkegaardianism. A practical Kierkegaardianism. A, reduct a reduction, a reduction of the content of our preaching. A reduction of the content of our preaching. In our evangelism. In our teaching in the Christian school. In our mission. The content being lessened and lessened and lessened and lessened. Often we must understand that to all intents and purposes, this leads to the, to the reality of the practice of asking people, and especially young people, simply to blindly believe, to leap, without asking their questions and having their answers. Don't ask questions. Just believe, dear. When we come to this, what we are in the midst of a practical, practical, Kierkegaardianism that cuts the ground from under truth. We must think of Marshall McLuhan, and we may reject his theories, but his analysis is correct, that there's a hot and cool communication. The hot communication influences men through their minds. The cool communication is merely the first-order experience. And Marshall McLuhan says, in a cool age such as ours, you cannot sell products on the basis of a hot communication. But as evangelicals, we must consciously reject this and we must reverse it. As the age becomes increasingly cool, we consciously must stress content, 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 content. 
or we add to the confusion concerning truth in our day. The second thing I would say where the evangelical tends to add to the confusion concerning truth in our day is where we treat the early chapter the early chapters of Genesis. The early chapters of Genesis. The way the new theology, the existential theology treats the whole Bible. That is treating treating the early chapters of Genesis in exactly the same way as the modern man treats all of knowledge, and that is in a divided field. To say down here in the area of reason that the Bible is not not a matter of revelation when it touches that which is open to verification and open to falsification. Namely, where the Bible speaks of history or that which science teaches, it is not revelational. In other words, the Bible has mistakes in it at those places that are open to propositional language and propositional discussion. When evangelicalism under the name of evangelicalism enters into this, without realizing it, they are doing exactly the same thing as the whole modern scope of theology and the whole existential field is done. When we're left with the early chapters of Genesis or any part of the Bible, that it only speaks of religious truth and not down into that which is open to verification, really the game is over. I would remind you one thing, one I quote in Escape from Reason of Grandfather Huxley back in 1890, where Grandfather Huxley said, I visualize a day not far hence when faith will be separated from all fact and especially all pre-Abrahamic history and faith will go on forever, triumphant forever. And I'm sure Grandfather Huxley threw back his head and roared. Because it is true in this sense that now cannot be challenged, but it also must be said to any reasonable man, it is also now nonsense. When we do this, we have added to the confusion of our day. Lastly, I would say that the evangelical of our generation is in danger while speaking of truth to undercut truth in another way. And that is a failure to exhibit to our own children and the watching world that we really do take truth seriously. And we do this when we do not practice truth in religious matters in those places where it may be observed. If we say Christianity is true, but we do not practice truth, believe me, we undercut truth. Who will believe us credible if we say that we know the truth and this is the truth, and yet we do not stand in antithesis contrary to that which is non-truth? Don't you understand you're Hegelian when you do this? You're right in the midst of the modern stream. Born-again Christians, regardless of what stream of the church they are in, have certain things in common. And certainly one of the most basic is this, that we, as we exhibit the existence of the God who is there, and by God's grace, we simultaneously exhibit his holiness and his love. There are counts of Christians who show his holiness, it would seem, but in harsh and hard and unloving and unbeautiful, and there's nothing beautiful there. There are those who try to exhibit the love of God, and it ends surely as compromise. Surely what we need for these next great years that lie ahead of us, surely what we need under the working of the Holy Spirit is groups, individuals, who at cost simultaneously exhibit both things at once, the holiness of God and the love of God, speaking in love but in antithesis. Without this, we've, I believe we're finished as a force. We say, what do we say? Mind you what we say. We say that we not only believe in the existence of truth, 
But for we believe we have the truth, a truth that has content and not just existential experience, a truth that has content and that can be verbalized, it can be put into words, a truth that we can share with the 20th century world. But do you think your contemporaries who do not believe that truth exists will take us seriously if we do not practice truth in an observable way in religious matters? Do you think for, the mo for a moment that the really tough-minded 20th century young people among whom I work and spend my time, and including our own children as they go away and their education becomes greater, do you really believe that such a tough-minded generation against the whole culture which surrounds them and screams on every side that truth does not exist, do you think such a generation will take us seriously if we do not practice truth where it is costly to us and where it can be openly observed out into the things of practice in the world? In an age that does not believe that truth exists, do you really believe that young people will take us seriously, that we are speaking truth and believe in truth if we do not practice truth? When Christian truths are involved, I do not understand the blindness of so many of our minds at this point. Not only is it not right from the biblical viewpoint, but it is suicide in communication to the 20th century world. We must do something better than much of this much has been done. There must be the practice of truth. There must be the practice of truth in terms of practical antithesis. What do I mean? There must be the loving and yet courageous saying something is wrong when it contradicts that which is true. There must be this. Or people will not in a relativistic age understand what we mean even by truth, let alone accept what we say. We must have a practice antithesis in the area of religious, uh, religious things. This must be in the area of religious co cooperation. It must be in the area of religious cooperation. How do we cooperate with a man who denies the central thing in the hierarchy of Christian doctrine and say we really take truth seriously? I don't mean for digging a ditch. I do not mean for black justice, but I mean in religious matters. How can we say that we take truth seriously in regard to churches that are under the control of men who no longer clearly hold the truth, clearly they do not, and we do nothing about it, we never raise our voice? How can our children take us seriously? Do we not understand there must be the voice of antithesis if there is going to be the voice of hearing? Otherwise, we, we add to the confusion of our day. And if we do not take such a position in regard to our religious organizations, our churches and others, and regard to cooperation, has it not been the thing which we have seen in these last years that these things tend in the next generation to lead to a latitudinarian, latitudinarianism, a comprehensiveness in regard to the, to the central doctrines of the Christian position and specific lat, specifically that of Scripture? We have watched it on every side. Must we learn to the sorrow of the next generation as we have learned to the sorrow of the past? I call on you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to really understand where we are, to understand that there's a question of truth and men cannot take us seriously. We do not have credibility 
if we do not show something in these practical areas. What would the young people do? I'll tell you what they will do. It's what they've done in droves concerning the evangelical church. They will shrug their shoulders and they will walk away. We are not showing love if we do not take this antithesis in practice. We are showing unlove to the generation will under, from whose feet we then cut credibility in the scriptural message. It is not love. It ends as unlove. And in conclusion, I would say, in the light of the tremendous pressures which are ahead of us, we must help each other to have something better in the next years and for the next generation, hopefully till Jesus comes, than we have known in the evangelical ranks for the past years. Indeed, in such a setting as that in which we live, as such a setting as our day, we who are evangelical dare not, out of loyalty to the infinite personal God who is there and who has spoken in the Scripture, and equally out of compassion for our own young people and other young people, we dare not take a halfway position concerning truth or the practice of truth in religious matters in the church, in religious cooperation. If we do not do this, if we do not do these three things, if we do not do these three things, one, a strong stress on content, two, a maintenance of a strong emphasis on the, uh, the propositional nature of the Bible, and especially the early chapters of the Bible, and third, a strong emphasis on the practice of truth in all religious matters, if we do not do these things without meaning to do so, we add to the denial of truth in our own generation.